This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Over the past few days, there has been a lot of chatter on Twitter about the latest Atlantic cover story, The Last Temptation by Michael Gerson. This article seeks to make the case that evangelicals under the Trump administration have received a bad rap. That case is made by omitting massive swaths of history, while simultaneously trying to sanctify today's evangelical movement by highlighting the good works of its 19th century predecessors. This blind hagiography is due to the author's strident attempt to, tr- to try and redeem the word evangelical, so to speak. Gerson writes, I find this desire understandable, but not compelling. Some words, like strategic castles, are worth defending, and evangelical is among them. While the term is notoriously difficult to define, it certainly encompasses a born-again religious experience, a commitment to the authority of the Bible, and an emphasis on the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. He continues, I was raised in an evangelical home, went to an evangelical church in high school, and began following Christ as a teen. After attending Georgetown University for a year, I transferred to Wheaton College in Illinois, sometimes called the Harvard of Evangelical Protestantism, where I studied theology. End quote. Side note, only Wheaton grads call Wheaton the Harvard of Evangelical Protestantism. That's just not a thing. But anyways, despite this long preamble that precedes this that serves to frame the political and social realities of evangelicalism since November 8th, 2016, Gerson's piece takes a drastic turn after this biographical statement. It's clear that for Gerson, the term evangelical has had an indelible and defining mark on his life's work, as well as the story he tells about himself. So, he is driven to defend it. If only he could do so honestly. And if only evangelicalism were worth defending. Gerson frames his fall from grace as the story of how an influential and culturally confident religious movement became a marginalized and anxious minority seeking political protection under the wing of a man such as Trump. Even this framing is misleading. Evangelical social concerns have been paramount in conservative politics for decades. Gerson returns to his evangelical credentials as a Wheaton alum, this time to lay claim to its abolitionist roots. Yet he does not mention the case of Dr. Laricia Hawkins, Wheaton's only tenured African-American professor, whom the college sought to dismiss after she wore a hijab in solidarity with Muslims. And while I appreciate a recounting of the rise of the social gospel amidst the progressive area, progressive era, excuse me, and the emergence of fundamentalism in the late 19th, early 20th century as much as the next guy. I don't appreciate it being used as a rhetorical bridge to speciously connect the author's personal experience at a college 100-plus years removed from its abolitionist fathers in an attempt to revitalize a term that's been corrupted by church-going, poll-voting members. Gerson describes the 20th century withdrawal of fundamentalist evangelicalism as, quote, as it Quote, created a web of institutions, radio, sta- radio stations, religious schools, outreach ministries that eventually constituted a healthy subculture. 
a healthy subculture. That is quite a way to describe a movement that would champion patriarchy, heteronormative sexual behavior, insidious unspoken racism, and often blatant outspoken racism. He also just can't seem to uh, take help but take jabs at mainline Protestants. He says over time, evangelicalism got a revenge of sorts in historical rival- rivalry with liberal Christianity. Adherents of the latter gradually found better things to do with, sun- with their Sundays than attend progressive services. He then goes on to describe how mainline liberal churches faced a decline in church attendance while the opposite was true in evangelical churches. He calls this as its old, he frames it as such, he says, as its old theological rival faded, or more accurately, collapsed, evangelical endurance felt a lot like momentum. And there are some points here that I can agree with, like how evangelical politics have been decided decidedly uh, conservative and decidedly reactive. But others, like this following one, are laughably absurd. Gerson posits that the funneled, this funneled focus has created the damaging impression that Christians are obsessed with sex. Much of the secular public hears from Christians only on issues of sexuality, from contraceptive mandates to gay rights to transgender bathroom uses, usage. And while religious people do believe that sexual ethics are important, important, the nature of contemporary religious engagement creates a misimpression about just how important they are relative to other crucial issues. Now, that uh, is sort of unbelievable. Um, There are fewer landmark evangelical political issues than those surrounding sexuality and gender, be it abortion, gay rights, or women's rights. Yet Gerson is quick to dismiss this as merely a misimpression. This whole sort of rhetoric is pretty much a major stretch, and there has been a a number of people that have criticized this on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, Even though this has received some um, fawning reviews uh, by some religion writers and journalists, this has also seen its uh, due criticism as well. I highly recommend checking out the uh, Twitter feeds of Michael J. Altman. Um, Who else... Uh, I had it pulled up, Michael J. Altman, uh, Jack Jenkins, Kyle Howard, and uh, James, Kyle James Howard, and I am sorry, I my page is not loading, Jamar Tisby. All of these uh, individuals have great uh, threads in regards to this issue, and what it comes down to really is that these sorts of biographies, these sorts of fluff pieces that The Atlantic and The New Yorker have allowed um, older white evangelicals to print in very high profile, high profile places like the cover story of The Atlantic do not do anyone but evangelicals themselves service. It provides this misimpression, the most calculated one and the most damaging one, that evangelicals in this day and age, uh, white evangelicals, the bannermen of this movement, have any sense 
of desire to change their ways or to modify their beliefs in order to address the things that have gotten them such bad reputations since November 8th, 2016. What we've learned and what's been evident to the entire country since November 8th is that evangelicalism (laughs) feeds into authoritarianism. This is not an overstatement. It's merely a reflection, a political reflection of the sorts of governance that happens in evangelical churches where men are the ones, the only ones that are allowed to be leaders. Women are devalued. And in many, many, many cases, there is inherent racism in those churches as well. This is not hyperbole. If you listen to the interviews that I've collected over the last nearly two years, these trends and these threads are visible in those stories. These are the patterns that have been repeated. These are the things that several people in the evangelical community, those that are vocal on Twitter and are writing elsewhere, these are the things that we've been talking about for a long time. And that's why you're getting a bad reputation, evangelical leaders, because you stand up there and you give a shitty <laughs> commencement or, or uh, uh, inauguration speech. It's unbelievable. And for this to be allowed um, or to be promoted in places like the New Yorker, and that is referencing the uh, Tim Keller piece that did try to have a little bit more navel-gazing in regards to what it means to be evangelical. You're moving the goalposts here. Um, If you want to have the political power, you better be able to own it when your cultural power fades because people have seen you for for your fruit. This is just the truth. And... You've got to own it. I'm I'm still pretty pissed about this. Um, This is a little more of a a raw sort of episode than I usually do. Um, But (sighs) this is ridiculous. Stop publishing these hagiographies when we know your biographies. You can't seek sainthood when you've acted like a villain. 